Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Professor Russell Foster, the world-leading expert on circadian neuroscience, discusses his new book, which looks to help us all get our inner body clocks running a little more on time. Every second of the day, tiny biological clocks are ticking throughout our bodies, from the neural pathways of your brain down to your very cells. But modern life is disrupting this ancient and delicate mechanism in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. Artificial light, jet lag, smartphones, air pollution and out-of-sync work and meal routines are conspiring to push us out of joint. Russell Foster is a professor of circadian neuroscience and head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology at the University of Oxford. His new book is Lifetime, the new science of the body clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and health. It looks at how we can better understand the science of natural rhythms within our own biology. Our host for the discussion is the author, economist and broadcaster, Linda Yu. Here's Linda with more. Warm welcome to you, Russell. Tell me why you wrote this book. Well, I've been in this sort of business in the area of body clocks, uh, sleep, and how they're regulated by light, really since an undergraduate. And what? So, so after forty years, I, I've sort of now had the opportunity to try and unpack the science and make it as accessible as possible. And this hopefully will allow people to uh, lead. Uh, healthier circadian lives, but also improve their sleep. Uh, so, so it was really the opportunity to sort of broadcast this extraordinary branch of science. I mean, if you think about it, we, we've, we've, we've made some amazing uh, um, discoveries. We actually understand at a molecular level how the clock ticks. In fact, some, some old friends from the States um, uh, who worked this out in the fruit fly got the Nobel Prize for it. And in, and in parallel, with working out how the clock ticks, it's also why it's so important and why it's embedded right at the heart of our health. And I think that information, you know, everybody needs access to. So there was that. That's that. And also, I suppose there's a, there was a little bit of me um, who was a little bit irritated with the sort of the sergeant majors of sleep screaming that you must get eight hours and you mustn't do this. And I and I wanted to kick against that. Um, and really, throughout the book. I mean, the emphasis on, you know, with sleep, for example, it's just like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And the key thing is to arm people with the information so that they can then find the best way of sleeping for themselves or organizing their lives and then sticking to those behaviors. Mm. I want to come back to sleep in just a moment. Um, But I suppose, firstly, I mean, this is your book is written from your decades of experience. Um, 
And you write, in so many cases, our ability to success or fail, from driving home safely or achieving weight loss, depends on a 24-hour biological cycle. So just tell me about how the body clock and sleep together define and dominate our health. Yeah. I mean, for our biology to succeed, we need to deliver the right materials at the right concentration to the right tissues at the right time of day. And so there's an incredible time structure to our biology. And, and, and that's sort of imparted by our internal circadian system. And if that system falls apart, then it drags down the rest of our biology with it, um, including, of course, our sleep-wake cycle. So it's right at the heart of so much of what we do. Um, and I think that's been one of the great sort of things that's emerged over the past 10, 10 20 years or so. So you write in your fantastic book that over a third or 36% of our entire lives is spent asleep. <laughs> so Russell, why do we sleep? And tell me about waking up in the middle of the night. <laughs> okay, well, why do we sleep? Um, I, wrote, I, I wrote a paper of, um, a couple of years ago, um, which the title of which was There's No Mystery to Sleep, which was, which was slightly provocative. But but give, if, if if you allow me, just indulge me for a few moments about about this really important issue. There's been the assumption that because sleep dominates our lives, thirty six percent of our biology, there must be a single overriding reason for why we sleep, and I've never really felt very comfortable with that philosophy. So, the thesis that's developed in this paper is: look, all life on the planet has developed a period of activity and inactivity, which is adapted to the Earth rotating on its axis. And of course, this is at the heart of circadian rhythms. But, but if you've made the evolutionary decision, as it were, to be active at night, <clears throat> you've then developed a whole bunch of specializations which allow you to perform optimally in the dark. And in the same way, if you've uh, uh, if you've adopted to um, uh, be a day active animal, you've got all of those specialisations. And and of course, the key thing is that a day active animal fails at night, and a night active animal fails during the day. So once you've got that compartmentalisation, you then have to think, okay, well, what's the what wh what do I do with my biology? And and you allocate that biology to the appropriate phase of the rest sleep or activity cycle. So if you've built up a whole bunch of toxins during the day as a result of metabol metabolic activity, they can be bundled up and cleared at night during the sleep phase. If you've acquired all this extraordinary information that's come in from the environment during the active phase during the day for us, um, then you need to decide how you're going to deal with it. And that goes on during the inactive phase, when you're not being swamped with lots of new information and the brain has got capacity to actually consolidate those memories or uh, process that information. So, so where I'm going to is my definition of sleep would be a period of physical inactivity which prevents you moving around an environment to which you're poorly adapted, but during which time you undertake critical, essential biology. And so there isn't a single overriding um, activity. And, and in fact, you, you, you ask, why, why do we sleep? You can also ask, you know, why are we awake? I think, I think it's the sort of yin and yang of, of, our, of our biology. So, so it's not, not everybody would agree with that. In fact, I've got very close colleagues who get quite irritated with me with that definition. But anyway, that's the one I'm sticking to. Um, and of course, what happens at night during sleep in us 
are so many things. I've touched on the the clearance of toxins. I mean, what's what's emerged over the past few years is there's this misfolded protein called beta amyloid, and it's associated with the development of Alzheimer's. And we know now that that is bundled up and got rid of whilst we sleep. And if people are prevented from sleeping, you can actually measure increased levels of beta amyloid within within the cerebral spinal fluid and uh, as it's deposited uh, deposited within 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 the brain. So that's one really important issue. We also know that the consolidation of memory is going on whilst we sleep. And there's some beautiful data showing that a night of sleep can enormously enhance our capacity to remember stuff, but not only just remember stuff, but also process information. So coming up with innovative solutions to complex problems is actually going on in the brain while we sleep. So essentially, so much biology is going on whilst we sleep. It defines our ability to function during the day. So <clears throat> that's that's the big sleep picture. But but you also asked um, about waking up in the middle of the night. <clears throat> now, we are screamed at so often by saying, you know, perfect sleep is eight hours of uh, of uninterrupted sleep. And that's perhaps the, the abnormal state. If you look at society's on the planet without electric light, um, <clears throat> and you look at medieval records, then the sleep pattern was actually very different. Uh, there's a sort of a two-hour sort of quiet period after sunset, um, then maybe a two or three-hour block of sleep, wake up, interact with others, go back to sleep again, maybe it, maybe wake up again, and then go back to sleep again. And so what what seems to be the natural state of humans is, is called biphasic sleep, by uh, two episodes of sleep, or indeed polyphasic sleep. And in that regard, we're just like all of the other mammals. And the problem that we're facing, I think, at the moment is that because of the, 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 the sort of headlong rush into modernity, we've squeezed our opportunities to sleep and we've, we've lost this sort of biphasic and polyphasic episodes. And so uh, when people uh, do wake up in the middle of the night, they think, oh my goodness, this is the abnormal state. Um, I, I'm not going to get back to sleep. I might as well start doing my emails, drinking coffee and, 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 and taking it on the chin. But actually, the key thing is staying relaxed, uh, keep the lights low, um, do something relaxing, and, and indeed you will fall back to sleep. And so waking up at night is not necessarily the end to sleep. It's We're embracing actually some of our ancient biology. And, and just one more point on that. It's it's been shown in the in the field, <clears throat> and of course with medieval records, pre-industrial records, but also in the lab. Uh, individuals were brought into the lab, given twelve hours of light, twelve hours of darkness, and within a few days they flipped into this biphasic, polyphasic uh, sleep pattern with these with these wake ups in the night. So so if anybody's out there is worried about waking up in the night, please don't. There are some added complications to this though. If you're um, elderly. So what's happening, um, and, and, and the need to get up and pee, for example, so, so many elderly people you know, complain about this. And there is a basis, there is a biological basis for it, because as one ages, the, the amplitude of the circadian rhythms in many of the hormonal patterns, uh, instead of being a, a robust, high peak to trough, have sort of been squashed a bit. So the hormones regulating urine production um, are not high urine during the day, low at night. It's a bit more squished. So there is that sort of tendency to, to produce more urine at night as we get older. It's also enhanced, though, enormously by inactivity. So if you're sitting at a desk all day or sitting watching the telly or whatever, then fluid accumulates in the lower legs. 
Um, and uh, when you then lie flat, that fluid is then reintegrated into the bloodstream, and you actually get a, a, a lot of fluid. And in fact, just by lying down after a day of not doing anything, um, can generate a liter of urine. Bearing in mind that the bladder is about 350 mils, has a capacity of 350 mils, then, you know, you're going to produce more urine at night. So it's really important, particularly in the elderly, if you move around, uh, keep active um, uh, to distribute that fluid before you go to sleep. So that was a, quite a long answer to, to, to your question. <laughs> but an absolutely fascinating answer. I love in the book that you mentioned Albert Einstein slept for 10 hours a day. He's a great example of what you're describing. But tell me about what happens when sleep gets disrupted. Tell me about stress and adrenaline. So we can think of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption in three broad domains. The impact upon our emotional responses, our cognitive responses, and our overall physiological health. So after relatively short periods of sleep restriction, sleep loss, and circadian rhythm disruption, you see increased, for example, fluctuations in mood, um, irritability, uh, anxiety, and I should stress that anxiety is one of the great enemies of sleep, um, loss of empathy, the failure to pick up those, those signals from friends, family, and colleagues, uh, and, and also frustration, increased risk-taking and impulsivity. You know, yes, I think I can make that red traffic light when in fact you, you can't. Um, a negative salience, some wonderful data has, been, has, has uh, uh, been published over the last few years showing that the tired brain remembers negative experiences but forgets the positive ones, which means that tired, people, tired people's view of the world is negative, which, which then will influence the sorts of decisions that you make. There's a tendency to want to drink caffeine coffee and tea to stimulate, to try and you know, override this sleep loss. And then, of course, at night, when you've got a day wired with caffeine and, and energy-rich drinks, you need to reverse it. And under those circumstances, there's a tendency to drink alcohol as a sedative or indeed take sedatives, uh, tablets. And the key thing to remember there is that these are sedatives. They do not provide a biological mimic of sleep. And in fact, some of the important things going on in the brain, like memory consolidation, the processing of information, can be actually inhibited by alcohol and sedatives. And of course, that can blend into illegal drug use. If we think about our cognitive impairments, then uh, our ability to multitask is gone, our memory consolidation is gone, our attention, our concentration, our communication skills, our decision-making skills, creativity, productivity, uh, and, and indeed the whole sort of social connectivity. So big impacts upon emotional and cognitive responses. But long-term sleep and circadian rhythm disruption, as you see in night shift workers, is associated with cardiovascular disease, altered stress responses, high levels of infection. Um, and that may be related to uh, why cancer rates are higher, for example, in night shift workers, um, metabolic abnormalities such as diabetes too. And as you mentioned in your sort of introduction, uh, depression and, and, and mental illness really um, affected uh, by, by poor and disrupted sleep. So I think the, the key point is that 
sleep and circadian disruption is so much more than the inconvenience of feeling tired at an uh, at an inappropriate time, but impacts upon everything that makes us special. You know, our ability to interact, our ability to solve problems, and indeed our ability to to, to develop a healthy physiology, and and it really is right at the heart of uh, essentially everything we do. Yeah, I mean, you write that employers assume their night shift workers will adapt to the demands of working at night, but it's just not true, as you were um, outlining there a moment ago. Um, that is very worrying, actually. And then, of course, the reliance on coffee. I mean, tell me more about coffee and this frightening concept of microsleep. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. So, so if we if we drill into the biology of this, so there are there are two sorts of timers. Sleep, of course, involves a flip-flop between consciousness and sleep, and that involves a realignment of all the brain neurotransmitters and multiple brain structures. And it's kind of timed by two things. The clock, which is saying now is the appropriate time to be awake, now is the appropriate time to be asleep. And then a second timer, which is perhaps the most intuitive part about sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the sleep pressure and the greater the need for sleep. Now, That process is often called sleep pressure or the homeostatic drive for sleep. And one of the key um, uh, neurochemicals that has been associated with that is a substance called adenosine. And we know that adenosine builds up within the brain. The longer we've been awake, the higher the levels of adenosine within within the brain. And indeed, in animal studies, adenosine has been introduced into the brain and it's made animals go asleep. Now, how does that relate to caffeine? Well, what's so fascinating? is that caffeine actually blocks the receptors in the brain that detect adenosine. So the brain can't detect the adenosine. It can't detect how tired it is. And so that's what's happening with caffeine. It's masking our ability to detect how tired we are. And and of course, you know, many people uh, fuel the waking day with endless cups of coffee and they're they're, they're suppressing the brain's response to, 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 to tiredness. And one of the problems, of course, is that as soon as the caffeine wears off, you can then uh, plummet into an extreme sleep state, uh, often called a microsleep, uh, where you can simply uncontrollably fall asleep. And many of the listeners may have had a frightening experience where they've actually fallen asleep at the wheel. The low end of estimates from the states are that 100,000 crashes on the American freeway are due to microsleeps and people falling asleep at the wheel. That's the low end. Other, other people would put it at, at, higher, uh, at, at a higher level, more like 300,000 crashes every year. And many of these crashes, of course, are fatal because what happens is you've lost control. You've, got, you've lost the ability to respond to the, to, to the, the acceleration towards another car or to the middle of the road. So, yeah. Um, so short-term caffeine, of course, can be, you know, if you've got to make that long journey, um, a cup of coffee can actually reduce your sleepiness and, 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 and that can be very useful. But it's a, it's a dangerous game. Um, and I think it's, it's really beholden upon all of us not to drive when we're tired. Tell me about being a morning neutral or evening person. Oh, that's such a great question, Linda. Thank you. I love, I love this question. Um, <clears throat> so it's all about our chronotype. Um, and that sort of refers, are you, a, <clears throat> are you a lark, a morning type? You like to get up early, go to bed early. An intermediate type, often called a dove, yes, yeah, so, which is where most of us sit, and that's about 65% of, of, of the population. Or an owl, <clears throat> which is about 25% of the population, like to go to bed late and, and get up late. And 
there are three essential elements to our chronotype. One is our genetics. I mean, one of the really amazing things recently is that we've got these clock genes driving this 24-hour oscillation. And uh, subtle changes in some of those genes can either speed up the clock or slow it down and make you either a lark or an owl. So there's a genetic component. So by our contribution to, to our genes, our parents, in effect, are still telling us what time to, to go to bed and, and, and get up. So that's one element is our genes. The second is our development. Um, and that's very closely related to the hormonal changes that occur during puberty. So from about the age of uh, 10, there's an increasing tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later, peaking in the late teens, early 20s. Women tend to peak uh, a little bit earlier than men. There's, a, there's about a year, year and a half difference between men and women. And women never get as late as men. And, 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 and men tend to be later for longer. But after the early 20s, then there's a move to go to bed a bit earlier again. But that's a long tail. So the time you're in your late 50s, uh, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed at about the time you got up and went to bed uh, pre-puberty. Um, at about the age of 10. The key point is that there's about a two hour on average difference between somebody in their late 50s, early 60s, and somebody in their late teens, early 20s. Um, and so, so really asking um, uh, a teenager to get up at seven o'clock uh, in the morning is, is really like asking them to get up at five o'clock in the morning. It's that level of, of, of difference. Um, so um, that's the second component, and, and it's tightly correlated with the sex steroids, estrogen, testosterone. But the third, which is often overlooked, and this is where we have real control, is when we see light. So we've got this internal beautiful clock timing all this exquisite physiology um, to the very demands of the, of, of, of the 24 hour rotation of the earth. No good at all, unless it's set to the external world. And that's where light comes in. But light doesn't do the same thing at different times of day. So dusk light delays the clock, makes us get up later. Morning light advances the clock makes us get up earlier. Now, when we were all agricultural workers, we got symmetrical exposure to both um, uh, morning uh, and evening light. But in our 24-7 society, that exposure can be very distorted. Um, and so we did a study uh, a few years ago uh, whereby we looked at the chronotype of teenagers and uh, young adults. And we showed that the later the chronotype, the late, more owl light they were, the more evening light they got. And of course, it's evening light that delays the clock. Uh, and what was happening, of course, is that these young people were sleeping through the morning, they were missing the morning light, and then getting the evening light. So they were getting a, a push to be later. Um, and they didn't get that uh, symmetrical push to, to be earlier. And so what you can do if you're if you're if you're struggling, set the alarm clock, um, at some ghastly hour, you know, early morning, and then get out there, get exposed to bright natural light, and then that will advance the clock. 
Um, and so, so, so it's when we're exposed to light can also affect our chronotype. So, uh, you know, you think it'd be a fairly straightforward question, but it isn't. But the good news, I think, about chronotype is that we do have some control over it, depending upon when we see light. And we can, we can, we can, we can change that. And if, and if we can't get out, for example, in the winter months, um, uh, to get natural light, then a light box can be very useful in that context. I did the quiz in your book, and it turns out I'm just an intermediate person in that I guess I'm a dove. Um, the, um, Russell, let me ask you about how do you lose weight? Because you write that 98% of people lose weight, but then they gain it back. And here's my favorite stat in the book. Three hours of gardening has the same calorie burn as an hour in the gym. Yep, so, Russell, yep. tell me, uh, what well, is the best way to lose weight? <laughs> no, no, I th absolutely. Um, gardening is really, really, really great. And there's some other references to gardening in the book. So if we step back and we think about the biology, if you think about it, um, during the day, we're consuming calories, we're burning those calories to uh, drive our metabolism, to drive our muscles, to do essentially drive our brain. 20% of the calories we consume are actually consumed uh, uh, by our brain, uh, which is huge. Um, so, so what, 3% of our body weight is, is, is consuming 20% of our calorie intake. But of course, when we're asleep, we're not taking in calories. And therefore, we have to survive on the mobilization of our stored calories, our stored fat. So we're very different creatures uh, during the, 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 the day and the night. <clears throat> and so uh, what's, what's been shown is that if you, um, some, some, there's a range of different studies, if you infuse glucose into a, a sort of a constant stream of glucose uh, into uh, an, an individual, and of course glucose is the energy store, then the glucose is cleared and metabolized far, far faster during the, the, the first half of the day compared to the second half of the day. And, and of course, if that glucose isn't being burnt, then it's being turned to fat. And so those then informed other experiments uh, by putting people on calorie restriction. And so let's have something like 2,000 calories. Uh, and these individuals who are given those 2,000 calories primarily at breakfast and lunchtime or primarily at lunchtime and in the evening. And those that had the morning calorie intake lost weight much faster than the evening calorie intake. And, and, you know, this is sort of somewhat perplexing. But if we, again, look to historical records, and it's a great, it's a great, example of whether social sciences actually could inform, you know, biology and science. Because, of course, the habit of eating late is a very recent phenomenon. If you look to the medieval and the pre-industrial period, then the breakfast and then all the medieval banquets we tend to think of as, you know, in the evening, or actually in the middle of the day. Um, and, and there was a very light meal uh, before before bedtime. But with industrialization and the commutes um, and, and the disruption of so many aspects of our social behavior, you know, when the breadwinner would get home after work during the day and after the commute home, then the main meal, the main family meal was shifted later to the, uh, to, to the evening and sometimes the late evening. And so our, our sort of society has shifted our eating habits away from what our biology is expecting and what our biology can deal with optimally. So your question, Linda, how do we lose weight? Well, uh, ideally, we, we concentrate our calorie intake during the first half of the day. 
uh, when we're going to be burning those calories rather than uh, the second half of the day and towards bedtime when we're going to be turning those calories into fat. Mm. Russell, you also bust a few myths in the book. Tell me why the business executive who gets up at 4 a.m. and starts work is not a role model. No. Um, you know, we've talked about sleep responses, you know, the, the, the response of our body to, to sleep loss. And, you know, if you want to be innovative and creative, and if you want to interact um, and, and be an optimal human being, then you embrace sleep. Now, there will be a small percentage of the population out there who can get up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, the, 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 the really morning types, and then function. But to try and impose that um, uh, pattern on somebody like myself, uh, who's a late type, or somebody like you, Linda, who's an intermediate type, is completely counterproductive. And it's that sort of appalling machismo about, oh, I did another all-nighter, I didn't, you know, sleep is for wimps, you know. And I think, I think we're moving away from that, but there's still that vestige. And it may actually relate to you know, throwback to our sort of Protestant work ethic, which is, you know, work is virtuous. Uh, and, and if you can't work, you're not virtuous. And of course, you can't work when you're asleep. Therefore, by definition, sleep is not virtuous. And I think that sort of uh, carried forward to this whole nonsense idea that sleep is for wimps um, and is an indulgence. And it's almost been treated up until recently as an illness that needs a cure. And, and the key thing is that sleep and sleep timing, sleep duration is incredibly different. It's rather like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And the key thing is to try and define whether you're getting enough sleep and then modify your behavior appropriately. And I think, you know, a really important question that, that individuals need to ask themselves, well, how do I know if I'm not getting enough sleep? Well, the simple answer <clears throat> is, are you able to function at the level you want to function during the day? Do you show optimal performance during the day? Um, but there are other ways you can assess this. Do you need an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning or somebody else to wake you up? Um, and, and, and does it take a long time to, to actually come to, you know, do you have this what's called sleep inertia? Do you, uh, do you oversleep extensively on free days such as the weekend and particularly when you go on, on holiday? Um, do you do you feel irritable, um, fatigued when you're awake? Um, do you crave a nap during the day? Do you find yourself doing overly impulsive and unreflective things? Do you crave caffeinated drinks? And do you share altered behaviours? And I think it's really important that you listen to friends, family, work colleagues. Are you showing increased in disinhibition? Are you showing irritability, loss of empathy? And if it's yes to a bunch of those, then it indicates that you're not getting the sleep that you need um, uh, at, at night. And that's when you need to start to think about, well, how can I, how can I achieve that optimal behavior? But as I stress, you know, in adults, for example, we're, we're told, you know, the optimum is, is eight hours. Um, but actually for adults, the range is, is, is that the healthy range can be from six to 10 hours. And we'll sit somewhere on that spectrum and it'll change a bit. It'll certainly change as we age. Um, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, as I say, it's not a one size fits all. And you really need to answer those questions. Am I performing optimally at the level I want to perform uh, during, during the day? Mm. 
the events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to come to questions in just a moment, Russell, but I have to ask you, what are your tips for a good night's sleep first? <laughs> well, of course, I think that the primary tip would be um, buy my book. Um, <laughs> but that's that's outrageous. Um, so I think you can, you can, you can divide up um, some tips for sleep uh, into four domains. So what can you do during the day? What can you do before bed, the bedroom itself, and when you're in bed? So during the day, Really get out there and get that morning light. It's so important at setting the clock. And it's morning light for most of us. If you happen to be a lark, a really early person, then you might want to get evening light. But for most of us, it's going to be morning light. If you nap, make sure it's no longer than 20 minutes and it's not close to bedtime because that's going to push back the sleep pressure and make it more difficult to get to sleep at night. Um, exercise, not too close to bedtime, because increased core body temperature is going to make it more difficult to get to sleep. Um, we've talked about food, um, and we've talked about caffeine. Don't drink caffeine in the afternoon, if you can possibly avoid it. Um, and, and the key thing at sort of the end of the day is to step back from stressful work situations. I think, you know, so, so stress is the absolute enemy of sleep. So many people say, I've got a sleep problem. They don't. They have a stress problem, not a sleep problem. Um, before bed, so you can reduce the light levels, um, uh, uh, so, so, which reduces alertness. Um, stop using your electro electronic devices. Uh, really important, at least 30 minutes before you want to go to sleep. Uh, we've touched on this, but but avoid sedatives such as alcohol or or or, or, um, or drugs. Um, avoid the discussion of complicated, difficult topics. Now, for many couples, the end of the day is about the only time they get some time together. And certainly, at least in my household, I've banned any discussion of, of family finances <laughs> before bed. It's just too stressful. Um, and also think about, you know, that transition before bed and into sleep um, of, of winding down activities, whether it's whether it's sitting quietly, listening to some music, reading, 
a favorite poem but it's you know so important to get into the into the into the phase of of, of preparation for sleep the bedroom shouldn't be too warm um 18 to 22 degrees perhaps on the on the slightly cool but not cold keep it quiet particularly if you're next to a road keep it dark again if there's light coming in from outside make sure that that the bedroom is a haven for sleep. So get rid of the televisions, get rid of the computers and the smartphones. And I know this is difficult because so many bedrooms are also studies, but try and be disciplined about it. Don't clock watch. So many people, um, you know, who, with, with an illuminated um, uh, 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 an alarm clock will, may wake up. They think, oh my God, I've only got two hours left, get stressed, and then they won't get back to sleep. So it, many people actually just cover up the face. The alarm is what's important. It's not whether you've got two hours before you need to get out of bed. Don't take sleep apps too seriously. They're okay for telling you roughly when you went to sleep, roughly when you woke up, and if you woke up in the night. So sleep duration and sleep timing. But when they start telling you you've had good deep sleep and all the rest of it, ignore it, because the current devices simply cannot extract that information reliably, and none of them are endorsed by the sleep federations. And then finally, in bed, um, keep to a routine, uh, both at um, the weekends and during the workday. Um... Ensure that the bed is large and comfortable. I mean, you know, as we discussed right at the beginning, 36% of our lives are spent in bed. And some of us are really cheap about the mattresses and the pillows we buy. And we should actually, you know, make, make, make these places, you know, it should be a place of, of comfort and haven. Keep bedside lights low, again, reducing alertness. Um, some people use relaxing oils. Now, the, 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 the database for that is not very good. But I think there's, a, there's an important placebo effect here where people will enter the bedroom and, and let's say it's lavender. Think, oh, yeah, this is the place where I sleep. I associate lavender with sleep and, th and that's what I should be doing. Um, one very important point is if your partner snores. Um, the first point is that snoring can be quite, well, it's very disruptive. And you need to make sure that your partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea, which is basically if they stop breathing, and then have these great spluttering surges of intake. That's really dangerous. And if there's any evidence of that, go and see your GP and get it sorted out. The other thing is, if your partner is keeping you awake because of snoring, find an alternative place to sleep. It's no reflection upon your the, the quality of your relationship. In fact, it means that both of you are going to get a better night's sleep and then have all the benefits of a good night's sleep. Um, and then as we discussed, the really, I want to emphasize again, if you wake stay calm. It's not necessarily the end of sleep. So there are just a few tips um, across the sort of the day before bed, the bedroom and in bed um, that what, what we can all sort of start to play with to enhance our sleep. Fantastic tips, Russell. I'm going to come to um, questions that have come in. Uh, so Russell, the first question is, do you know, and I think you've touched on this already, how alcohol affects sleep? I've heard that sleeping after alcohol is not the same as sleeping sober for the body. Is this true? Absolutely true, yeah. Um, essentially, what you're doing is you're distorting 
um, <clears throat> the, the neurotransmitter pathways that would normally keep you um, alert and awake. And so you sedate, you essentially, you, you're, you're stimulating actually inhibitory pathways, which then mean that um, you're, you're basically turning off some of the, the, the consciousness drive. Um, and, it, and, and, and sedation is emphatically not the sa same as biological sleep. Now, <clears throat> one has to be slightly careful. Um, so short-term use of sedatives, you know, sleeping tablets, for example, the, the Z drugs, um, uh, for example, um, can be useful. The thing you need to be careful about is that you don't habitually use them to try and induce sleep at night. That can be dangerous. And in fact, in the elderly, um, they are strongly not recommended because it causes drowsiness if individuals are waking in the night, there's an increased tendency to fall. And also, uh, with even the Z drugs, there's increased daytime sleepiness, which can be really um, counterproductive. It's very interesting because people will have this daytime sleepiness, which um, which is in fact not sleepiness, but fatigue in a sense, because it's sort of this, this sedation. Um, they feel frustrated because they can't do what they need to do. Um, that generates anxiety, and that can actually um, feed back and, and disrupt sleep. So I think it's a really important issue, and sedation is not biological sleep. Mm, interesting. Um, and the next question comes from David. Do you have any suggestions for shift workers to cope? Yeah, I think this is an incredibly important question. Now, um, where to start? Um, I suppose when, first of all, why don't shift workers shift? And and the and the issue is light. So what happens is that the night shift worker is under relatively dim light in the workplace, then will experience bright natural light during the day, uh, or in or in the evening, and the clock will always defer to the brighter light signal as being daytime. And so the problem is, is that the biological clock doesn't shift. And so working at night doesn't mean that the body is adapting to working at night. So what it's got to do is override this huge drive for sleep. And of course, it does that uh, through 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 the stress axis. Night shift work because of sustained act activation of the stress axis. And I just sort of don't want to be too down on the stress axis. The stress axis is really important. And it's a bit like um, the first gear of a car engine. You know, it gives you that wonderful acceleration. You can get out of it. But if you keep the engine in first gear, you're going to destroy the engine. And that's rather like the stress axis. And so what you find in night shift workers, high levels of obesity, um, diabetes 2, metabolic syndrome, coronary heart disease, um, and, and high rates of cancer. So, so what can you do? Well, you can't cure that, but what you can do is mitigate. The first point is, and I think there's an important duty of care by employers, is that they should have higher frequency health checks of their workforce to catch these health problems before they become chronic. So, First is high chronic, you know, high 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 frequency health checks. Second is um, vigilance. So if you're tired, you're you're falling asleep. And one of the great dangers is not only falling asleep or or becoming drowsy and poorly attend uh, poorly attentive in the factory. And and of course, night shift work is associated with a much higher accident rate and also higher fatalities. But it's the drive home that can be so very dangerous. Um, the study published a few years ago showed that 57% of junior doctors 
after working a night shift, after, after a series of, of night shifts, 57% had re- reported either having a crash or a near miss on the way home. So what can we do about that vigilance? Well, we can use simple devices such as um, uh, something on your, on your phone. And so you can detect um, head nods or, or movements, particularly as you get close to home, that will alert you that you're falling, falling asleep. In the factory, you can, or, or the workplace, you can increase the amount of light, which will increase levels of alertness. So those are some of the things. Education, I think, is critically important. So m- many night shift workers don't know what's happening to them. And it's not just the individual, the night shift worker, but also their family. The divorce rate is sometimes six times higher, depending on the on the type of work, six times higher on the night shift compared to the day shift. And it's because, of course, the demands of working at night, you lose your, you know, you, you lose all of those incredible things that make us your sense of humor, um, your, your empathy, all go. And so the partners need to understand that this person hasn't turned into a monster, but this is an almost inevitable consequence of working working on the night shift. And I think one, one more area where, where I think we, these are all things that we could do now. Um, oh, two, two more things. One, of course, is that if you're having high levels of coronary heart disease, um, diabetes 2 metabolic syndrome, what food could we provide in the canteens for night shift workers? Well, what, what's available is high fat, high sugar, you know, burgers, chips. Nobody, to my knowledge, is actually providing high protein, easy to digest, small snacks, which the digestive system and the body can deal with. Um, and so we've got to sort of move away from, uh, and it's very difficult because of course, if you're tired, you you release the hunger hormone ghrelin and you're actually craving more carbohydrates. So, so it, again, requires education. And I guess the final area would be to chronotype the workforce so that if you're a, if you're a late type, for goodness sake, don't put them on the morning shifts. And if you're a morning person, don't put them on the late shifts. Now, it's not the complete answer, but at least it will mitigate um, some of of the issues. So the 24-7 society, that genie is not going to go back in its bottle, but we can use a range of approaches that will mitigate those problems. And and actually, I think really we've got to um, make sure that the uh, employers actually understand what they're expecting their employees to do. Many of them don't. And, and, and certainly I had my eyes opened in this when I spoke to several years ago now, the head of the Confederation of British Industry, who basically said, we're going to cure the problems of British industry. We're going to run it on a 24-7 basis. You know, uh, no, no, no commutes, no need to build more office spaces in London, you know, all this sort of kind of stuff. And nice chap, um, you know, well-meaning, but no idea of the biology. Um, and I think we've we've so we've got it, education is a, is a key p- uh, piece here, and I, I, I'm clearly many people don't want to to, to work night shifts, um, uh, but there are educational and social reasons. Many nurses, for example, work night shifts shifts deliberately because it's the only way they can also combine a career with a family. They can get to the, the kids off to school, you know, um, in the morning. Uh, they can go back to sleep. Um, and they're there for when they come home, then they go on the night shift and they can get back um, for, 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 for getting them off to school. And so there are s- significant economic drivers in this. Nevertheless, we need to educate people about the consequences. I hope that was, that was Dave, wasn't it? I hope that was of some use. I'm sure it was, um, Russell. Next question comes from Sarah. 
Is there any evidence that obesity is linked to sleep or the body metabolizes food differently depending on how much sleep is had? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we, 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 we touched on that in the, in, in the last question. So, so there's a very, there was a wonderful study done on healthy young males who were only allowed to sleep. I think it was either five or four hours a night over five days, five or six days. And that's not actually that surprising. The banking sector, five hours of sleep a night is, is almost the norm for, for many individuals. They looked at the impact of this restricted sleep over, I think it was seven days. And at the end of that period, ghrelin, the hunger hormone, was up, I think, by something like 27%. The satiation hormone leptin was down by 17%. Carbohydrate consumption had gone up by 35 to 40%. Um, and, and the ability to clear glucose from the circulation was bordering on the diabetic. So that was just after seven days. So, so yeah, sleep duration um, is very important in the regulation of our metabolism, and we need to take that incredibly seriously. Russell, can I ask you a question that's come from Kevin? Is there such a thing as too much sleep? Ah, uh, that's a great question, Kevin, and I, I'm very glad you asked that, because there are a series of studies that come out from time to time saying if you get, oh five hours of sleep or less, uh, or nine hours of, of, of sleep, or more, more sleep, you're going to have um, health issues and you're going to die early. Um, now, uh, I mean, that's, that's putting it crudely, but, but that's the sort of, that's the kind of un, under, undercurrent that, that you get from these. The trouble is with all of these studies, the health status of the individuals was not taken into account. So they knew that they were only sleeping five hours or nine hours or, or, or whatever. But of course, if you're ill, the pre-existing condition, that can either shorten your sleep, let's say obstructive sleep apnea, for example, or if you have um, a range of, 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 for example, depression, can increase your, 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 your sleep duration. And so I think it's very difficult to make generalizations. Um, and, and also, because we're so different, saying that the best, you know, is eight hours is completely wrong. Some people actually thrive on nine hours or six hours of sleep. And, and, and we go back to the whole shoe size issue. You, you work out what's best for you and you stick to it. So there is no automatic nine hours bad, you know, you're going to die. Um, what you do need to be careful about is, is disentangling. And I think this is, this is really important. Um, sleepiness from fatigue. And I was speaking to somebody last week who had an underlying health issue, which was she had an immune problem, and it was generating incredible fatigue. And even though she had the, 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 the availability of sleep, and she was sleeping, you know, quite long periods, and she was getting off to sleep fine, she was still feeling overwhelmed uh, by, by fatigue. And so sleepiness can be, can, can be cured by sleep. Fatigue represents some underlying health issue. And if you notice this going on, then you must consult your, your general practitioner and try and find out what's going on. Interestingly, in this individual, the fatigue was not allowing her to function optimally during the day. And so she was uh, getting really, really anxious. And so she would wake up at night and then she'd realize all the things that she hadn't achieved during the day. Um, and that would prevent her getting back to sleep. So, so it was a, a vicious circle of getting worse and worse and worse. So try and disentangle sleepiness from fatigue. And if it's fatigue, 
go and see your, your healthcare professional. One more. Why is it that my book sends me to sleep? but my phone keeps me awake. Is it simply the blue light? I know yeah, you write well, about this in your book. Yeah, no, this is interesting. So um, let's, let's deal with this blue light issue and, and, and electronic devices because there's a lot of... The jury's still out, I should say. However, let me just give you... Uh, describe one set of experiments, which is often quoted incorrectly. So group at uh, Harvard um, got people to read from a Kindle um, it's called an ebook because they weren't allowed to use the word Kindle in the paper for for four hours on its highest intensity for five consecutive nights. So you know, four hours before sleep every night for five 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 nights. At the end of that five nights, sleep onset was delayed by ten minutes, and it was barely statistically significant. And in fact, one of my colleagues was so incensed with this, they said, well, it may be statistically significant just, but that's biologically meaningless. And so it's probably not the low levels of light from these devices. Um, and in fact, you know, you can get these these screen shifters going from blue light uh, to orange light. The evidence that they actually interact with the clock is is minimal. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was actually talking to a teenager fairly recently and I said, you know, you really mustn't use these devices, you know, late, late, in, late into the night. He said, oh, it's, it's no problem because I've got a device which shifts the screen from blue to orange. So it's not going to be a problem. And I said, okay, well, there's not any really good evidence that that will work. And by the way, what time do you think you're getting off to sleep? He said, well, about. 2, 2 a.m., maybe sometimes 3 a.m. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can actually delude yourself with this stuff. Um, so uh, to answer the question, it's probably not the light. Um, I think that because these electronic devices are so much more dynamic, you're interacting and you're flipping. I mean, I, you know, we will do it. And, 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 uh, and that, that you're just, they just have a greater alerting effect than the comfort of something that is static and 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 the word which you can read and it's not so interactive now of course some books are you know intensely interactive they're thought provoking all the rest of it but um most of us i think would use and i i often read an, a comforting novel um before i go before i go to sleep to get me into the space um so um or listen to some relaxing music so i think those are the sorts of things and i think that's the difference between a complicated interactive electronic device versus a book which um, it's a bit more passive, I guess. Well, I absolutely think everyone needs to buy your book, even though it will not put them to sleep because it is just completely fascinating. And you've got some wonderful tips in the back. You've got a quiz, you can monitor yourself. And so I hugely recommend our audience, um, firstly, join me in thanking Russell Foster for just a such an insightful um, discussion. And it's just been absolutely um eye-opening, um, really. I can see how this could be very life-changing. So thank you for joining us. And again, please pick up his new book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. It will change the way you view your daily life and for the better. And thank you all for joining us. I'm Linda Yu. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. <laughs>